0: Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield.
1: How do you convert your $200,000 transaction into a $2 billion threat? That's the key to getting things to go your way in foreclosure litigation. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, April 15th, 2021, broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida biggest mistake people make when defending foreclosures is believing that the case is about their transaction. It's a reasonable belief, but the case is not about their transaction. Every foreclosure that's filed, whether it's non-judicial or judicial, is about preserving the status quo in the world of false claims of securitization of loans. Most securitization schemes are in the one to $2 billion range. Anything you do that might reveal the scheme is not real or not as real as the investment bank said, risks collapse not of your transaction, but of the entire $2 billion scheme. Any credible threat from anyone results in the foreclosure mill going dark. I've seen it hundreds, actually thousands of times. Any credible threat results many times in payments in the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions, and as we have seen, hundreds of billions of dollars to those that threaten the scheme. Why? Because the scheme is worth so much more than that. Probably tens of trillions of dollars. So the truth is that the decision makers are not giving your case any real thought. You're giving thought to your case because it's the only thing that you think is relevant. But you have to expand your awareness beyond that. The decision makers on the other side are only viewing in the context of what protects their securitization scheme. Whether they win or lose, your case is immaterial to them as long as the securitization scheme is protected. Somewhere between questioning everything and questioning nothing lies the law. The law consists of duties, rights, and obligations of everyone. Plus, a legal process of determining if there was a breach, whether that mattered, and what to do about it. A successful foreclosure defense is entirely about establishing a breach by the foreclosure mill or its clients, or its supposed clients. The best way to do that is usually through demanding discovery and that's what this show is about but successful foreclosure defense is about seeking answers that you're entitled to ask when you're entitled to ask them and how the questions are required to be asked it is not about getting the answers. This is the part that throws everybody off, so let me repeat it. In foreclosure defense, it is not about getting answers. You're not going to get answers. Or if you get responses, they won't be answers to your real questions. No matter how well you phrase it and how timely you serve it. If someone sues you to collect on a debt, you are entitled to ask, what debt? How do I owe it to you? Who are you? People lose their homes because they assume they know the answers. They don't. None of them do. I mean, after all, how many people actually read those documents that they signed at the so-called closing?
0: And lawyers
1: inadvertently allow their clients to lose their homes because the lawyer was afraid to ask the right questions and then follow up. Lawyers do that because they think they know the answers and wish to avoid them. What I've been seeking to do on this program and on my blog and in my publications is to get lawyers in particular, but also homeowners, because it looks like they have to litigate these things themselves, to get lawyers to take a step back and start at the beginning and stop pretending that they know the answers. If you don't get answers or adequate responses, you are in the driver's seat you can either apply the brakes or coast along until you lose. That's what most people do. In fact, 98% really, 96% go by default, and half of the remainder file pleadings, as they say, to get something on record which is meaningless. But if you apply the gas, you can run the foreclosure mill into a corner because they have no answers. When lawyers go through the motions of seeking answers and no responses forthcoming, they're often, most often, perplexed but satisfied that they did their duty. They earned their fee. But they did not follow up, and as a result, the client loses the house when the client didn't need to lose the house. If there is one thing I want you to take away from this show, it's that in most cases, if foreclosure proceedings have begun, the loan account receivable no longer exists. That's right. By the time foreclosure starts, the loan account receivable no longer exists. There is no loan account. There is no creditor. And the lawyers are seeking profit for themselves, for the party who is designated as, quote, servicer, end quote, and for the investment bank that started the securitization scheme and all of its friends. They are not seeking to mitigate damages or restitution for an unpaid debt, because there is no unpaid debt for them.
0: You think there is?
1: They, even though they filed to enforce it, they know there is no debt. Thus, if you ask questions about the existence, authority, or ownership of what is claimed to be your debt, they cannot and will not answer except by referring back to fabricated documents that they created. They will not refer to such things as a canceled check or a wire transfer receipt or an ACH confirmation or anything like that, because that would show an actual movement of money in which the current claimant has made payment for ownership of your debt note and mortgage. But that transaction never occurred in the context of securitization. And Remember, securitization only occurs if there's a sale of an asset to investors. Nothing about your transaction has ever been sold to any investor. Therefore, your transaction has never been securitized, and all claims, therefore, arising from the implied securitization are false, by definition. And that's how I win, and that's how other lawyers and pro se litigants have won, and that's why there are cases that I have one that's 13 years old, others that are 8, 10, 11 years old. Why would they take so long? Because the foreclosure mill doesn't know what to do. Or they've been told to run around in circles. Why? Because by doing that, there's no decision or outcome that threatens the existence of the securitization infrastructure that's worth a couple of billion, or maybe more than that if they they re securitize the same uh, data that posed as a pool of loans, which none of them owned. Thus, if you ask questions about the existence, authority, or ownership of what is claimed to be your debt, they will never answer. And so, quite simply, this show is all about what to do with the inability of the foreclosure mill to answer specific, well-constructed challenges to the existence, authority, and ownership of the claimed debt, the existence of the debt, authority over the debt, and the ownership of the debt. After 15 years of such challenges, in dozens of states across the country, I can report that despite all biases and wrongful assumptions at the beginning of each case, 65 to 80% of them can be won. Make absolutely certain that you don't admit something that is against your interests unless you personally know for an absolute fact that the present circumstances as presented by your opposition are true and accurate and that is the, if that is the case better select a different strategy and tactical plan in cases involving securitization virtually nothing presented by your opposition is true and accurate next start as early as possible this could even be at or contemporaneously with the closing of your original transaction that was originated and the first correspondence received from the supposed servicer. Just a quick remark on the servicer, which I've said before. Remember that a servicer is not really a servicer in terms of what you're thinking of a servicer if it is not physically collecting the funds from borrowers and distributing the money to a creditor and you will find if you push especially at deposition that none of the services are ever allowed by the investment banks to touch the money that's coming in from borrowers either by way of payments monthly payments made out to Aquin, doesn't mean Aquin put it in their account. If you were holding hundreds of billions of dollars of mortgages and receiving billions of dollars in payments, would you allow a, a thinly capitalized entity like Aquin the opportunity to steal billions of dollars in payments? No, you wouldn't, and they don't. That money goes to a lockbox that's controlled by the investment bank. You only use terms that you are absolutely certain that you know their meaning and understand and are relevant to the case. Stop saying things that you think sound good. They may sound good to you, If you don't know what you're talking about, they sound pretty stupid in the courtroom. Avoid using the nomenclature, the words of the opposition. For example, loan. Don't refer to your transaction as a loan. You may have wanted a loan, but unless you got a lender and a loan account receivable and compliance with the lending statutes, and compliance with the servicing statutes, you didn't get a loan. You got a payment, which they called the loan. Servicer, I just went over that. Servicer is not, maybe a servicer in some respects, for example, it maintains a call center, but I think even that is outsourced. the, the servicer is a placeholder. They're not doing anything. The trustee, stop calling them a trustee if they're not performing any trustee duties. Trust, stop referring to it as a trust because if there's nothing in the trust, it's either completely a legal nullity or... It's in coate, which means sleeping, because there's nothing in it. If it if the trust does not own your transaction, then the existence of the trust is irrelevant to anything you promised, because you didn't promise it to them and they didn't acquire it. Certificates. Stop accepting the word certificates because, frankly, in this day and age, none of the certificates exist in printing and printed forms, and there are no such certificates. They are merely posted entries. And even if the certificates existed, none of them convey any interest, any title, any right, to your transaction. You don't owe a debt to investors who purchased the so-called certificates. You haven't executed a note in favor of the so-called holders of those certificates. Stop referring to the certificate holders as certificate holders because they have not been identified, ever. And if you inquire, you'll be told that that is proprietary information, despite the fact that they're saying in the style of the case that the action is brought, this is not in all cases, but many, the action is brought on behalf of the certificate holders or the registered certificate holders. They're not providing any information in the style or the body of the complaint or in any other instrument as to what registry, what certificates, what is said on the certificates, or who the holders of the certificates are. They have no business being in the style, which is is potentially not only a subject of discovery, but also a, a motion to strike them. Holder of the note. Don't call them a holder of the note, and don't call them a holder in due course of the note unless unless you concede the fact that they have physical possession of the original note, and this is the part that everybody messes up on, not just possession, but also the right to enforce. Where does the right to enforce come from? Well, the right to enforce ultimately comes from one source, and that is the one who paid value for the underlying debt. Now, people will tell you, people who don't read the code carefully, will tell you that's not true. You can get the right to enforce a note, from a prior holder who did not own the debt. True, but if that party was a holder, then it received, that person, that legal person, that company received authorization to enforce from someone else. Ultimately, if you trace that back, it's got to go back to the one who paid value for the underlying debt. If it doesn't, they're not a holder. If they're not a holder, they're not entitled to any legal presumptions. Be very clear on the legal differences between the underlying obligation, the debt, the note, and the mortgage. No, they are not the same. Use specific, easily defined words in your discovery rather than general words that are susceptible to interpretation. For example, don't ask for proof of payment. Do your research. If you just ask for proof of payment, they will respond with a reference to the note, a lounge, assignment, or the mortgage. They will rely on legally acceptable presumptions arising from those documents, many of which may be fabricated. Proof of payment is general. But a wire transfer receipt, an ACH confirmation, a copy of the ledger, a journal entry, a canceled check, those are all specific. Now, if it's a a ledger or journal entry, there's got to be somebody who can provide foundation for exactly how and when the ledger or entry was made and by whom. Stick to the core issues of the case. In a foreclosure, the core issues are those that involve the collection of the debt. The opposition will make it about the documents. That's their strategy. Make it all about the documents that they fabricated and that contain false information. The homeowner needs to make it about the underlying obligation. That's what this is all about. Your original transaction was about money. The foreclosure is about money. That means focusing specifically on the money trail, but it might, in the court's discretion, allow the homeowner to fish for information about what happens to the money after successful foreclosures by the named claimant, you will find that in any case where they are naming a remit trust, the highest probability, 99%, is that after foreclosures are conducted in the name of that trust or that U.S. bank for the Sasco Trust, whatever, the money didn't go to U.S. Bank. It didn't go to the Sasco Trust, and it didn't go to any agent of U.S. Bank or the Sasco Trust. That's hard for people to believe, but that's what's happening, and there's a reason for it. The reason for it is that the investment bank has made at least $12 for every dollar of the transaction with the homeowner. And they're not interested in treating this as a loan on their side. They just want to treat it as a loan for enforcement. Submit discovery demands with your complaint or petition or with your answer or affirmative defenses. The sooner you get into discovery, the better. Keep in mind that there is a potential claim for recoupment defense or concealment of the true nature and elements of the transaction with the homeowner. This could be a basis for wide discovery and wider discovery puts the opposition at greater credible risk of being revealed as pursuing a false claim. And they are pursuing a false claim. The aim here is to create a decision that could affect all deals claimed to have been securitized because they were never securitized. Not yours, not anyone else's. You get leverage when on your $200,000 transaction you present a $2 billion threat. Keep your pleading short, direct, and related to the core issues. If you're filing an answer, deny everything. Deny everything except, I just thought for a moment, deny everything except those things that you know for an absolute fact are true. If you don't know whether they're true or not, then that's what you should be pleading. It should be from your own personal knowledge. Everything else is denied, and you demand strict proof thereof. So the pleading reads, without knowledge and demand strict proof thereof so it could also be denied not just because you're without knowledge but because you have specific facts that cause you to deny the allegation and the complaint and a judicial foreclosure so for example when the allegation is made or assertion in non-judicial foreclosure that the exhibit is a true and correct copy of the original note and possession of the plaintiff or beneficiary you can easily deny that as being without knowledge because and because you don't think any of that is true. You don't know if that is a copy of the original note. You don't know if they have possession of the original note, they're saying it. And unless you signed it yesterday you're probably incapable of even hazarding a guess as to whether that is a reasonable facsimile of anything you signed. But people regularly admit that in the courtroom because they think it must be. But it isn't. Most cases the note has been destroyed or lost. What they're looking at is a mechanical recreation of it. So I got a checklist that I'll send out free to anybody who writes to me at Neil F. Garfield at hotmail.com for discovery. And I'm also uh, about to publish, and you can make your inquiry about that, a workbook on the actual uh, requirements and content of what could be your discovery requests. So that's as much as I've been able to get in tonight. Uh I'll be back next week. After that I'm off for a couple of weeks. Um while Charles Marshall and Bill Padalo host the show. Good night and thanks for joining
0: the opinions expressed on the neil garfield show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities for more information about neil the blog or upcoming seminars please visit livinglies.me give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com thank you for listening to the neil garfield show if the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? ha! in my dentist's office.